Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shorley. Coming up on today's episode, you remember when I was at the uh, Cheltenham Literature Festival last week. Well, about an hour after the terrible news came through that uh, Sir David Amos had been attacked and had died, I was due on stage at the festival to talk to Jess Phillips, the Labour MP and frontbencher, and uh, it inevitably changed much of the conversation that we had. Uh, but I thought we'd bring some of it to you on the podcast today. So we, we talk in quite emotional terms, I think, about her immediate response to the news about uh, Sir David Amos. Then we move on to talk more broadly about attitudes towards politicians, cross-party working, and uh, just politics in general in Britain today. So that's coming up uh, as our big thing on the podcast. First, though, we kick off, as ever, with our columnist panel. It's Rachel Sylvester and Libby Purvis. Let's let's start with uh, David Amos and the, the the sort of reaction to it, which very quickly becomes a broader. I mean, it's basically taken as a given. Everyone liked him. Everyone, you know, his constituents in particular seem to love him. The the tributes for people who worked with him are, are quite extraordinary. And then very quickly becomes a sort of broader conversation about both the future of constituency surgeries and the role of anonymous social media accounts uh, and so on. But you, you've you tackled this from a slightly sort of uh, different angle today in your column, Libby. The, the, there's, a, there's a bit too much focus on, you know, people who might have caused offence through hate crime, whatever it might be, rather than the police taking seriously the genuine threats of real violence. Uh, yes, I mean, obviously, in this case, it was it was a, an attack, a physical attack, and out of the blue, and no threats involved. But what I wanted to talk about was I've always disliked Tony Blair's rather showy hate crime laws because assault and harassment and breach of the peace and threatening behaviour already were crimes, had been for decades. Uh, it was just a bit of icing to put this hate thing on. And so I wanted to point out that there is a distinction between plain rudeness, calling somebody a fool or a pervert or a sinner, which is sort of very rude and very stupid, and actually threatening and assaulting and harassing them, which is serious. And I would like to have death threats taken absolutely seriously by police, and they should be put on people's 
criminal record. Some of these students, you know, with their kill the turf banners um, in, in Sussex, you know, they, they should know that this could affect their future ability to travel and to get jobs. You know, that it's a very, very serious thing to talk about violence and to threaten violence. And this is, never seems to me to be taken quite seriously enough. People seem to just get away with it or slap on the wrist or, I mean, that ridiculous Semiramis... Um, <clears throat> Kate, what's her name? Semirami sounds um who, who the anti vaxxer who said, Oh well, you know, it's it's going to be like the um, Nuremberg trials, so just send me all the names and addresses of uh, health professionals, you know, because they should all face the noose, effectively is what she's saying. I mean, all the this should be prosecutable, this should be absolutely taken very seriously. And a lot of things like saying, Oh, you know, I'm a Christian and therefore I don't like gays, you know, should not be taken so seriously, you know, because you can just say, So what? You know, uh, that, that it's the distinction I want making. I suppose that the the point is, Rachel, with the the uh, the argument that Libby's making is that if you cut the police back a lot, they don't necessarily have the resources to to investigate, arrest, prosecute um, uh, cases of threats being made. That's true, but I think it's a little bit like. Do you remember there was the the th broken window theory that um, came up in New York? Uh, a couple of decades ago, when low-level crime and antisocial behaviour that was tackled with a sort of real clampdown approach, and that made a huge difference to much more serious crimes. And the argument was, which has now been proven um, it, like, through masses of studies in criminology, that if you start with the small crimes, the broken windows, the antisocial behaviour, then you reduce larger crimes. And I think it's the same with, with death threats. Um, Libby's absolutely right. We've, it's somehow become normalised that MPs have to have seven locks on their door, that MPs have have to put up with being sent nooses and um, knives on Twitter. I mean, this is horrendous. Female MPs regularly have death threats and, uh, sorry, rape threats. Um, all MPs have death threats. This is particularly bad for women, uh, actually, and particularly bad for ethnic minority MPs. Um, but but all MPs have to put up with this and, and other public figures, and it's somehow become normalised. And I think if you don't tackle bit like with the antisocial behaviour, if you don't tackle antisocial language and attitudes and when it, they become serious like this, then you, you end up somehow normalising violence. Um, and I, I think that's a really important point. Yes, I, I think, though, that the continuum, um, the, the, you know, the, the broken windows theory is also used as a continuum thing, that people sort of say that an evangelist going around with a placard saying homosexuality is wrong, they say, oh, there's a continuum between that and gay bashing. Um, you know, for actual physical attacks. And I just don't, I think that's a very lazy way that sometimes this country has tended to look at it. You know, it's much easier to be horrible to the evangelist walking around with his mad placard um, than it is actually to police on the streets. And so I think we've tended to be too much in that direction to say, you know, oh, thinking a bad thought is wrong, but we haven't actually got time to do anything about the real savage threats. So I think I think the threats have to be dealt with. You know, the mm. moment anybody makes a physical threat, it should be a very serious crime, whereas saying you don't like gays or whatever or trans people is not a very serious crime. The point about broken windows, wasn't it, was it was a small... Low, what was seen as a low-level offence, like a death threat. It wasn't just saying something insulting. It was something that was a, mm, a sort of yeah. serious infraction, but it, but it was suddenly taken seriously by the police, and that made a difference to more... Uh, I'm drawing mm. the parallel with the death threats, not with the insulting language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I suppose 
The point is uh, the, the the impact this has on all MPs who actually, you know, some of them I've spoken to privately say uh, that, you know, some of the response from the police is, oh, just ignore it. You know, this happens all the time. It never comes to anything. It's just sad men in their bedrooms on their laptops firing off things. They're not, they're not going to do anything. And then suddenly what happened last week is, is proved that it, it can be all too real, Libby. Yeah, but I mean, he hadn't been sending that we know of death threats. I mean, what you need to sort of say is that the sad men in the bedrooms who send the death threats should be frightened out of their wits by the yes. police coming round and saying, oh, are you aware that this is an offence? It's on your criminal record now. Uh, that That's the point. You know, you, you, you jump on them and everybody should know that threatening a person's physical integrity in any way is absolutely wrong and criminal and that the police care. Um, so the, the, I'm, I'm just making a distinction between death threats and just yeah. people being rude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I suppose because there is this, you know, everyone's been saying this more broadly, Rachel, that we need to, you know, bring some civility back to, to politics as well. But that, that's in no way suggesting that uh, someone being rude about Boris Johnson has anything or, or whoever has anything to do with what <laughs> happened to David Amos. No, exactly. And I think there is a, I mean, I, I like civility in politics, but I think Libby's right. There is a sort of distinction that's important with a death threat. And what's more important for me would be to lose anonymity online. So the sad man in the yeah. bedroom should be, mm. should be named and shamed and exposed. And I don't see why you have to produce, uh, you know, your identity to, get a bank account but you don't to get a twitter account and there should be should be absolutely clearly possible immediately for the police to trace uh, a twitter account to an individual that, that anonymity it seems absolutely weird to me that that exists still um and the other point in terms of the mps is that you look at the number of very good mps who've given up because of this the the death threats and their families they're just you know it's not just to themselves they get death threats to their families you, you know their elderly parents, mm. their children. Even uh, Louisiana Berger told me to her unborn child she had a death threat when she was heavily pregnant. You know, this is absolutely horrific and no wonder MPs are giving up good people and no wonder people are being put off going into politics. So it's bad for the whole, you know, political, um, our whole politics, the whole body politic, that the culture has become so aggressive and violent that people being drummed out of it. Libby, what do you think about that? What, what can we do to try and encourage more people to, to think about going into politics? More good people? More David Amos? Well, I think the anonymity the, the business of anonymity, that has to go. And um, threats against uh, public servants, and they are public servants, have to, have to be taken seriously. I think there will always be people who are brave and who brave it out. But you, you shouldn't have to be super brave in order to be an intelligent, thoughtful, clever, um, dedicated politician. Um, I think the anonymity has to go. I think there has to be sort of a real shock of shame and exposure and fining or, you know, imprisoning even against people who do make these death threats. And there should be, it should be, you know, that the moment you do it, the moment you write that letter or send that, I mean, there was a card sent, a birthday card sent to Sarah Vine's daughter on her 18th birthday with a threat against her father, Michael Gove, inside it. Right. OK, 
say I'm saying DNA postage police this is a crime you know let's get this person out there let's get them seen let them realize how dangerous it is because quite often people simply think that they're blowing off steam you know in the same way that I might say oh you know oh I could give him a slap you know uh, they, they think that's what they're doing but actually it's not it's more serious and it's damaging democracy as Rachel says the other thing is I think what your um, uh, request to listeners this morning to celebrate the local MP, that's really important. We have to somehow change this approach that MPs are just punch bags. You know, it, there is a cynicism, and I'm afraid sometimes the media is to blame as well. If yeah. you have headlines saying the judges are the enemies of the people, crush the saboteurs, uh, and the Times tries mm. very hard not to do this, actually. But too often, there's, uh, particularly in the tabloids, there's a sort of cynicism and an assumption that MPs are all corrupt. And actually, most of them are incredibly decent people doing the best for their constituents and for the country. You know, they're not driven by mad personal ambition entirely, although there is an element of that. <laughs> um, but they're, they're decent human beings doing their best. And I think um, sometimes the whole culture of treating MPs as if they're somehow criminal has to change. We just have to slightly think about what we're saying the whole time. Yeah. 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 Uh, although I, think, I do, I would, George, just think, I think it is possible to say that they are useless or misguided <laughs> or rubbish. Yeah, you know, that's yeah. that's not that is not you know to equate them with being evil or you know that should no. be should be attacked. Um, I do think uh, there's to... a thing though that's that's happened where instead of people being able to disagree, you know, civilly or even uncivilly, there's become this approach of, and I think it happened or was accelerated by breakfast, Brexit, breakfast, Brexit, where it's sort of people are good or evil. You know, you're either yes. are mm. for us or against us. It's not that I disagree with you on transgender. I disagree with you on Brexit. I disagree with you on the environment. It's that you are wrong morally and, you know, spiritually and somehow evil. Therefore, it's okay to send these appalling threats. And that whole, we've got to somehow bring back the ability to dis disagree, uh, you know, um, respectfully without... Yeah. One, one of the things, one of the things, all, all the tributes to David Amos, a great many of them to David Amos, um, said that he was so civil in debate, that mm. he was very, mm. very, very polite to people and disagreed with him. And that's why his constituents loved him. You know, you could sort of say, mm. you're a Tory, but oh, hey, you know, not a bad bloke. Uh, that ability, that civility in politics is absolutely vital. You need the occasional sharp sort of needle needle against somebody but you don't mm. need to be endlessly this, this sort of binary thing of you know either he who is not with us is against us you know mm. if you are not the solution you are the problem you know uh, that's got to stop yeah and actually i thought the, the, the really striking thing about lots of the tributes to david amos were people saying in fact jess mm. phillips said this to me on friday politically i didn't really agree with him on very much at all uh but he was a nice man and you can get on and that's the that's the that's the whole point of being sort of human beings um, mm. Just finally, Libby, just because it's a nice uh, story, uh, just to end on a sort of slightly lighter note, <laughs> uh, this story of the uh, th uh, the Spanish thriller writer Carmen Mola, uh, th um, <laughs> the big plot twist, reveal all. She won a big prize um, for her novel about an imaginary woman detective, Elena Blanco, a police inspector with a fondness for karaoke, grappa and casual sex. In other words, a male fantasy. Well, the book turns out it's just won the big prize. It was written by three blokes. 
um, screenwriters. <laughs> and I have to say, it's all very disgraceful. And people say, oh, that's terrible because, you know, they're men pretending to be a woman. But I have to say, anything which makes agents and prize givers and literary critics look like fools is a major public service. <laughs> I, love it. I do love a hoax. Don't you just love a I, hoax? I do. I must admit, I love, I love a hoax like that. I think it's terrific. Rachel? <laughs> I don't mind the hoax aspect at all, but I just think, you know, oh, what a surprise. And it's the three men who've written about this kind of sexy woman with grapper and casual sex. Presumably she also had huge boobs and, you know, wore low cut tops and mini skirts. It's the kind of ultimate male fantasy, as Libby says. So that's. And the karaoke. She loves karaoke. Yeah. Karaoke. Just took every. every carry, yeah, on, just took every... carry on karaoke. <laughs> Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester, and of course, you can read them in The Times. You just need to get yourself a digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesfedbox. Up next is my chat with Jess Phillips. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the Red Box podcast. Now, on Friday afternoon, news was coming in about the attack on Sir David Amos. Then we'd heard uh, that he had sadly died and the political world was in a state of disbelief. Well, just an hour later, I was on stage with the MP, Jess Phillips, at the Cheltenham Literature Festival. Emotions were quite high and I should warn you that Jess uses a little strong language in this interview with her, but I wanted to share it with you. Uh, She told me about Sir David and what she was feeling in that moment about the shocking news of his death. Firstly, to say about David, he was obviously a Conservative MP from uh, a long way from my constituency, so um, we, uh, we we had no particular reason to uh, be hanging out together, but what I would say about David is that, I, I, and, and believe you, I'm an honest person, I genuinely can't think of a, a bad word about him, and that is not the case uh, of lots of uh, my colleagues from all sides of the house. 
he was just a really nice and friendly man and I can't imagine. His big thing was that he wanted Southend-on-Sea to be made a city and he would, he would stand up and ask the Prime Minister for this, like literally what seemed like every single week. Every, for as long as it, I've been in the House, the House of Commons. The House of Commons, every single everyone. week at Prime Minister's Question Time, you could set your clock by David Amos standing up and asking, you know, but very sort of like in this sort of jovial, friendly way. Um, as if, like, you'll give in one day sort of thing, Prime Minister. And he's been saying it to all three Prime Ministers that have been there since I was elected. Um, and so why anybody would want to attack um, somebody like this, I, I have no idea. Um, but then there is no rhyme or reason to it. But the way it makes me feel as a Member of Parliament is it's not... It's a sort of blankness. I feel I don't know how to feel or how to process it. Um, and it brings back horrendous memories of the same feeling when my friend Joe Cox was shot and killed. And it is a mixture of shock, just, you know, like genuine shock that just sort of blanks you out. When Joe was killed, I was, um, I had been at her house the night before and when I saw the news, I, I genuinely saw an alert on my phone and I flicked it to one side as, as if, and like I couldn't register the news that it had happened. And then I remember just sitting in total silence for a day. And it feels a bit like that. It feels like I just feel silent about it. And all the connotations of like, what does this mean for members of parliament? What does this mean for democracy? All these big questions. And believe you me, when I say I've had about 700 messages from journalists, from newscasters, from people for since it happened and it, it was announced literally like an hour ago that he had died. Like I don't have the base in my brain to think about the big implications to our democracy of these things or what the solutions are or what could possibly have gone wrong in this case or it's just like shock I feel very 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 shocked and you have to try not to let that sort of quiet shock turn into despair or immediately risk assess everything because I know I'm sat in front of a room full of people and I will sit afterwards with people coming up and talking to me and I have to not I have to not let terror terrorize me but that's a really noble thing to say and a much much harder thing to do um when it's you or your children and I I just don't know what the solution is. I don't know what the solution is because, and again, this is hard to say without seeming like you're blaming the victim, and I'm of course not doing that. And I speak only for myself. Is I am unhelpable in this situation. I am not willing, nor will I ever be willing, to not be amongst the people who I represent. It is not an option. It is not one that would allow me to do my job. They could give me every risk assessment in the world. The police once told me to act less predictably. Um, and I said, you know, like, my children go to school <laughs> at nine o'clock. Shall I just say, do you mind if I drop them off at 6am? The police have said that I have to act less predictable. Um, 
our democracy in our country is gold standard for the connection between the person and the representative. I mean, I'm not, I can't say this for the current uh, incumbent of number 10, but, you know, I could certainly say it with confidence when Theresa May was the Prime Minister, that, you know, the Prime Minister of our country on a Friday night sits in a drafty church hall and listens to people talking about crumbling walls and paving slabs. Like, that seems like a sort of joke thing, but... My, I represent people from all over the world, people who live in very difficult um, uh, constitutional situations and they cannot believe a lot of my constituents. When Afghanistan was falling, my Afghan constituents could not believe that they could come and just sit in my office and talk to me because they are used to their representatives driving past them in blacked-out SUVs or not ever asking, needing to vote for them because that's not the system that they came from. And in the United Kingdom, we have a democratic system where when someone's drains are blocked because it's autumn and leaves do fall off trees and I can't do anything about that, (laughs) my constituents call me. Like... I don't want to live in a world where a kid who has been raped can't come in and say, Jess, I need your help, and for me to put my arms around her and help her. And so I don't think that there is a solution to this level of vitriol other than leading from the front of trying to bring down hatred and vitriol and make people appreciate the political system and appreciate the gold class of it and appreciate what we have living in a liberal democracy and why we shouldn't ever let that go. And so I've got nothing but blankness, Matt, is the truth, because there isn't... As a politician, you see a problem and you have to try and find a solution. That's the whole point of my job, is to look at the way systems don't work. But I can't see a solution. And so I just feel, like, horrified that this is allowed to happen. There were two thoughts I want to... Two thoughts I want to put to you. The first is, do we all have to grow up a bit? By us, I mean voters, actually the media too, that when uh, some extra public money is put to one side for security systems to be put in place, you don't get a freedom of information request at a front-page story of Mm. MPs filling their boots with whatever. And what will happen, and I know this will happen, for the next few weeks, everyone will talk about how marvellous constituency MPs are. Oh, they will, yeah. It gets brushed away within seconds. And then there'll be a story about... The government could come forward and said, right, every MP is now going to be given a bodyguard. Mm-hmm. And within six months, we'll have stories about how much money's been spent on these bodyguards. People will be having affairs with them. People will be having affairs with them. Uh, they will or won't be doing their jobs. Speak for yourself, Jess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but as a society, maybe it's born out of the MP's expenses thing. That there is this sort of it slight is. feeling yeah. t- that sometimes MPs can't be made to suffer enough. You can't travel first class. Yeah, yeah, you, you must wear a hair shirt all the time. Even yeah. though you spend most of your time dealing with all the crap that you were just talking about. Mm-hmm. As a society, we do have this view of yeah, politicians yeah, should have a miserable time. We do, we do. And, and politicians, by and large, deserve it because of, um, you know, poor behaviour. When I say politicians, a small minority of politicians acted like total arseholes um, and are on the take and don't care about um, anything but themselves. And by that, I mean the cabinet. Um, uh, <laughs> 
but that's on. not true. That isn't Wait, true. But you're doing it as well. And I was, yeah. the second point I was going to make to you is the language that politicians use about each other. Yeah. And just in the last Dreadful. couple of weeks, yeah, about yeah, a Conservative yeah. MP joking about blowing Bombs. up yeah. Labour MPs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you have the Deputy Leader of the Labour Party calling opponents scum. scum. Look, I, I think that there's... What I was going to say is that there is no... You know, there is a way of critiquing people... Um, either with humour and with succinct information and detailed breaking down of the things that are wrong with what politicians are saying and doing. No doubt about it, scrutiny is deeply, deeply important. I'm an opposition politician, so arguably my job is to scrutinise them just as much as your job is to scrutinise me um, and them. But there is a way of doing that that isn't with hate. Mm. I don't hate my opponents. I don't hate the people within who, my opponents within my own party. I don't. And, and that's a hard lesson to learn. It's not one that I felt when I went into Westminster for the first time. I didn't think that. And sometimes when you sat opposite them, um, the government, and they're saying things about people who live in your constituency and putting like a moral basis onto their benefits or like it makes people lazy and things like that. You, you know, you, it's hard not to like, I, you know, I'm a brawler. Like it's hard not to feel like a brawler in those situations. But the only way we're going to stop feeling vitriolic towards politicians is if they act as inspirational and hopeful figures who are honest when mistakes are made. There's no way of people liking politicians more and feeling more empowered by the system that isn't led by politicians. It has to be that, you know, I can't just say, well, don't be mean to us. I mean, obviously, don't kill us and don't threaten us and don't, you know, that, that, that should go without saying. But the only way to make people feel like their politicians aren't just all on the take is for those politicians to be inspiring. Now, funnily enough, people think that politicians are on the take, but they often like their own one. Yeah. They often go, oh, my one's actually really quite good. He got my mother into the supportive accommodation. Like, you know, um, people like their own one because they interact with them on a personal level. And, but it, it's, politicians lie all the time. It's things <coughs> like they stand in front of a building and they say, look, I built this amazing health centre. Boris Johnson, in his speech at the party conference, talks about the hole that was outside the ground at St Thomas's. And lo and behold, they've built a new uh, children's paediatric centre. Uh, isn't that amazing? And it's just like, right, A, yeah, that's nice. They've got a new children's paediatric centre. For a children's paediatric centre to have been built in that time, it was long before Boris Johnson was even the Prime Minister. He's probably still the Mayor of London when that happened. And it wasn't Boris Johnson who made sure that paediatric centre was there. It was the local infrastructure, the managers of that NHS trust, the people in that area. And instead, politicians go, that was all me. Look at me. Vote for me. I built this building. Why are we not engendering more you do politics, you the people, with me as your vessel do politics and we make things better? And that, I think, is the way to engender better feeling towards politicians. But I, I don't see it happening because when politicians make mistakes, they don't admit them. And it gets called a U-turn. <coughs> Why don't they just come out and say, well, we tried that and it didn't work, but never mind, let's move on. Yeah, some, some genuine honesty about we, what And also, when we, when we make policies, 
in the book, I talk about um, the decision you have to make when you're a politician about whether to take military action or not and how everybody in the country has very strong opinions which are easy to hold if they're not going to be held on a public record for the rest of your life uh, as if their opinion on whether you should drop bombs or whether you shouldn't drop bombs is the absolute like you know that, that they won't be taken from either side that as if there is no nuance because obviously on the face of it dropping bombs is bad right yeah you don't want to kill civilians I, I would never vote to drop bombs on anyone that might kill a civilian if you were to speak to the Syrian refugees in my constituency they would say where were you where were you when we were being gassed by the leaders of our country? So the idea that there is one route through a policy that means you are the moral high ground is not the case. And when we're making these decisions, we should say that. We should say this policy, I think on balance, is a good policy. But people, some people are going to lose out. And I think we need to be much more honest when we're making these decisions and say, look, it. I know there is no thing, such thing as perfect, but in the social media age, people expect there to be one side or another. This is the Red Box Podcast. Matt Shorty speaking to Jess Phillips at the Cheltenham Literature Festival. We went on then to talk about cross-party working and how sometimes it's the only way, particularly for opposition MPs, to get anything done. First of all, the first thing you do when you want something, so let's, you know, the example, the best example that I can give is that I wanted refuge provision to be provided in every single area. I wanted refuge accommodation for victims of domestic abuse to not just be something a local council could pick to do. I wanted to make it so that they had to do it um, and that that was not negotiable um, and that they were funded to do that. Um, and so the first thing you'll do when you want something is I don't, I don't actually go about like having a massive campaign for lulls <laughs> like I just go and ask the minister <laughs> so I just went I can have a chat with you and usually the first chat is you bump into them in the corridor and it's the reason why actually I'm against electronic voting being 100% of the time I think we should use it more than we do and we should modernise parliament but there is this element where you're all in the lobby together when you're voting and you grab the minister and you have a little chat with them or the Prime Minister sometimes. Because they're, they're narrow spaces. There's dozens of people in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're in the same lobby as the Prime Minister, what's uh, going on? I mean, you're voting uh, the wrong way. Uh, no, well, on one occasion, <laughs> during the Brexit votes... And oh, of course, yeah. It was when we got on to the point of the Brexit <clears throat> vote. No, the pre... Like, the ones to have a referendum or not. Um, and it was like we were voting on literally the minutiae of, like the ballot will be open from 10 till 10, you know, like we, we, oh, it'll be on a Thursday. You had to vote on so many details. I don't think people realise that, that we just do one vote. It's like there was a, there's a serious amount of detail that goes in and we had to vote on. And often, I hope you're not going to be shocked by this, I don't know what I'm voting on. <laughs> I sit in my office working away on the thing that I'm doing, trying to save the world, or sometimes I'm watching Pointless. Um, <laughs> And the bell rings and you go down. And this is the reality. I don't know what the vote is. I don't necessarily know, but I know that I'm whipped to vote a certain way. Literally, so you go down there. Yeah. Do you I know mean, I'm which... told in the morning what the debate is, but <laughs> okay. each individual vote could be about anything. Um, like, you know, you'll vote on 19 amendments. Um, so I'm walking through the lobby and I notice David Cameron is stood next to me. And I turn around and I said, why am I in the same lobby as you? What is this vote about? And he said, I don't f***. No. 
So, yeah, like, if I want something, like, so we go back to the, the I, I will grab a minister and say, how's about we do this? And they go, love it, Jess. Absolutely love your work. You know I care about this. <laughs> Me and you, we think the same. But we just don't have the parliamentary time for that. I'm so sorry. Like, we will get round to it and I'll get my civil servants to get in touch with you. Don't you worry. We care. Don't worry. And you have these chats. And then they don't do anything to make refuge accommodation exist across the country and say, okay, all right. You go and have the meetings and they say, I'll tell you what, we'll give you a review. We will review refuge accommodation in this country. And I say, okay, well, there isn't enough. There you go. Quick review. <laughs> we need more of it. Uh, and then th th you argy-bargy with them. You're asking questions. You're, you're writing newspaper articles saying... Loads of people are being turned away from refuge and you start to ramp up a campaign and then you get petitions and campaign groups and you get people going. And then you're sitting down and negotiating with the ministers. And if I didn't have friendships with the ministers, if I didn't, if I made it all like they're the baddies and they hate women and they wish they were dead on the streets, they wouldn't give in to me. I have to engender good feelings in the ministers that I work with because the outcome is all that matters. Me winning a campaign is, you don't get me wrong, I like it. It's a big ego boost and I feel like cool. But the outcome is all that matters. And so I have to make the Conservative government look good to get what I want. My problem with the Corbyn years was that, like, the, the, the virtue of righteousness. I'm not interested. I don't want to be righteous. I want an outcome for the people who need the outcome. And so sometimes that means, like, you know, fluffing ministers, <laughs> essentially. Like, that's the reality. So you think you could get more done as a backbench <laughs> MP than a Labour frontbench um, opposition? I d that was definitely the case under Corbyn, without question. Um, but no, I, I don't think it... I don't think... I mean, Priti Patel wasn't the Home Secretary when I was a backbencher, so I think we might just have come to a natural impasse. <laughs> I think in the spirit of us all being nicer, uh, we'll, we'll move on uh, to some of your questions. Mark says, could you take over as leader of the Labour Party, please? <laughs> I feel pretty There was another very, very good question, which I accidentally deleted, but it was if Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner were abducted by aliens tonight... Maybe they know something we don't. W uh, would you like their jobs and who would be your deputy? Oh. Would I like their jobs? The, simple an the only simple answer to that is no. I'd like Boris Johnson's job. Yeah. I mean, being the leader of an opposition party, that's got to be the gig in politics, hasn't it? <clears throat> it certainly looks like it at the moment. Yeah, it's not, it's not so you, a good you, gig. You ran last time because yeah, yeah, you yeah. thought... Put yourself forward. Thought you'd be the best person. Um, do you think you would have had more chance of getting Boris Johnson's job than Keir Starmer? Oh, no, necessarily. It's it's impossible to say, isn't it? Like, well, what, he's not it, doing very well, is he, Keir Starmer? Well, I mean, it depends by what you mean. He's got a long way to go. I agree to that. Given everything that's going on in the country, yeah. The shortage of butchers, shortage of lawyers. Is there a short? I didn't even know there was shortage a shortage of butchers. Of butchers. Yeah. I know, oh, pigs in God. blankets are in peril. Um, 
That is actually the worst news I've Fuel, heard. Fuel, cost of living, about gas being prices, all that, you know, put all that together, the Tories are 10 points ahead in the polls after the supposedly game changing speech by Keir Starmer. Are you. Does it. I think it's. You, want, you want to uh, get stuff done. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I this do doesn't appear to be a leader who's getting anything done, does it? Well, I think that that is an unfair assessment because I don't know. And the question being, would it be better if it was me? The answer is that that's an impossible question to answer because Boris Johnson is a bizarre force. <laughs> He's a cheerful force, which is something that the Labour Party should learn from. But, I mean, we, we, you have to be careful because in reality, if, you know, this criticism being about the polls, I think it's something like 76% of the British population don't trust Boris Johnson. Um, so it's not... In the data, he's not always as well-liked mm. as it's made out. Uh, and people where I live aren't that keen on him. But I think that the Labour Party has taken such a body blow for... Not just in the Corbyn years, although I think that that felt like death nelly rather than body blow, uh, you know, for successive elections, it has no confidence and it doesn't know how to stride out with confidence. And I think that that's going to take a huge amount of time. But I, I think that Keir Starmer is doing a good job of having to try and... It's an almost impossible task, which is why I said I wouldn't want his yeah. job. It's an almost impossible task. Well, so Sarah uh, said a question, what, which sort of follows on. Why do you think so many people think Boris Johnson is doing a good job? And what will it take to change that? They don't think that Boris Johnson is doing a good job. Most people, if you actually have a conversation with them, don't think that Boris Johnson is doing a good job. But they think nobody could have done a good job under the c circumstances, for a start off, which... <laughs> In some regards, is, there's a truth in that. Yeah. Like, uh, I mean, obviously, every other European country did a better job. But I, I, I get that, you know, that it, it, it's been difficult. Um, but I think that, personally, I think that the reason that people think that Boris Johnson is doing a good job is because the expectations of the British public are on the floor. Um, and we have forgotten that things used to get better and progress used to be made. And now we just expect things to get worse. We expect to hear that you can't have pigs in blankets. Young people in this audience have literally zero expectation of buying a house. Mm. And they think that that is okay. Like, we joke about it. Like, oh, young people these days, they could never buy a house. Why have we accepted that? I bought a house when I was 19 years old under the last Labour government. I had my I got my uh, education. I bought my first house. I had both of my children. I nursed and cared for my dying mother. Um, and at every single point, there was progress in those policy areas that recognised kids like me living not with the most in the world. So there was women in the building where I now work who could see people like me and think, oh, well, you know, she won't be able to afford to go to work as a young mother unless we offer free childcare. So my son was the first year to ever get free childcare. It just didn't exist before that. So my son was in that first year. And when I wanted to go back to work having children, I was given tax credits so that it was worthwhile me as a woman starting a career. And by the time I had my second baby, I didn't need those benefits anymore because I had worked my way up because I was able to go to work. And if I was 23 and having a baby for in 2010 
I wouldn't be a member of parliament. There is no way I would have been able to rise because they degraded all the services. They took away, instead of building ladders for kids like me, they built holes for us to fall down. And the worst thing about it is that the public just expects the holes now. That was Jess Phillips speaking to me at the Cheltenham Literature Festival. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.